I'm going to read before Stuart comes up. So, First Peter, chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. And you'll see that this concludes our summer-long series in First Peter. So you'll find it on the Pew Bibles. The page is just there, 1,222. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Salvanus, a, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Good evening. Uh, thank you all for making the efforts to come out. I personally love the evening service. I think there's something quite special about the evening service. It's a bit quieter than the hustle and bustle of the morning service. Not quite so busy. A little bit more simple. And I just find it far easier to be still and just sit in the presence of God for this evening service. So um, thank you for taking the effort to come out tonight. And I hope that you find the same blessing that, that I do when I come out. Um, thanks for your introduction, James. And as we've just um, read this section, uh, you're aware that this is our final uh, instalment, shall we say, from our uh, summer series, a mini-series, um, where a few of us from the church who don't normally get up the front here and, and speak have um, been encouraged to do so. So uh, if you've never been here this evening and you don't like what you hear tonight, Sorry about that, but come back next week. You'll have a professional back in the reins. Um, for those of you that did know I was speaking tonight and you still came out, thank you very much for your encouragement. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, as we focus in on God's word now, let's, um, let's pray, which I think has been customary most, most weeks, and let's ask for God's help again. Father God, we just thank you for the immense privilege that we do have uh, of being able to open your word together tonight. We thank you for the immense privilege we have, for the liberty we have to do that. And Lord, as we'll be focusing uh, our attention on uh, some of the areas of the world that do not have uh, anywhere near the privileges that we experience, Lord, we just want to stop and pause and give you thanks for all that we enjoy here in our Western culture, to have your word open in front of us and to have the freedom and liberty to look at it. Father, we just pray that you will uh, remove any uh, distractions from us. Uh, we know that Satan is at work and uh, prefers for us to be anywhere other than here tonight and would even have our distractions taken away from us, have us distracted away from your word this evening. 
but Lord, uh, you are more mighty than he, and so we just pray that you'll help us to focus in on your word tonight. Help uh, I, the speaker, and hearer alike, that uh, we will go away from this place this evening knowing that we have heard what you would have to say to each and every one of us. So bless us, we pray. Amen. So by way of uh, introduction, um, Christians remain one of the most persecuted religious groups in the world today. While Christian persecution does take many forms, it's defined as any hostility experienced as a result of any identification with Christ. Christian torture remains an issue for believers throughout the world, including the risk of imprisonment, loss of their home, assets, physical torture, beheadings, rape, even death as a result of their faith in Christ. Trends show that countries in Africa, Asia and the Middle East are intensifying persecution against Christians and perhaps the most vulnerable even are Christian women because they very often face double persecution, not just for their faith but for their gender as well. Um, As I looked at the Open Doors uh, website uh, in preparation for this evening, um, I saw that uh, they receive daily reports of Christians who face threats unjust imprisonment, harassment, beatings, and even loss of family because of their faith in Jesus. Every month, on average, 345 Christians are killed for faith-related reasons. 105 churches and Christian buildings are burned or attacked. 219 Christians are detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. These facts ought to, and I hope do, upset and alarm us. Perhaps they're a wake-up call to us if we allow ourselves to become detached from those realities that are experienced by Christians across the globe, day by day. And whilst it's safe to say that in our Western culture, uh, experience is a long way off from those persecutions that I've just mentioned, uh, we here in the UK are not exempt from suffering, albeit on a different scale. A quick scan of the Christian Institute website can remind us of how the MacArthur family, the the bakers um, in Northern Ireland on a seemingly normal day at work in their family-run bakery are suddenly and unexpectedly thrown into a a four-and-a-half-year legal battle against a gay rights campaign against them because they declined to decorate a cake with a slogan that was against their own Christian beliefs. The nurse or the air hostess who each faced disciplinary action for wearing religious symbols in the workplace and another for simply offering to pray with an elderly patient. The list could, of course, continue with the unreported cases of those who are treated unfairly because of their beliefs. The Christian who's simply marginalised because of their stance on Sunday trading. The child who's mocked in school because they go to church or because they refuse to accept the evolutionary explanation for the origins of life. The employee who is discriminated against because they decline to work on Sundays. So whether you're facing the horrific abuse or threats to your life that I mentioned at the beginning of opening this, um, of Christians overseas, or whether it's just simply an unkind snigger or a snort by a colleague or perhaps even a family member, we can find great comfort and instruction for such occasions from this first book of Peter. This evening we will... Uh, conclude our study of the book with Peter's final exhortations and encouragements to his readers, whatever our situation may be. You'll no doubt be aware that each week 
if you've uh, been with us for the previous weeks, our series has followed the unmistakable title. And to be honest, I was torn between which title to go for for this passage. Should it be unmistakable humility or unmistakable suffering? If you had the uh, new sheet at hand this morning, then you'll say that I went with unmistakable suffering because I think that best umbrellas or or, or overviews the whole book of of 1 Peter that we've been looking at um, together over the past few weeks. And I think as we get to this final passage this evening, you'll hopefully see that both both of those words, humility and suffering, will aptly conclude our series on 1 Peter. So it's my intention this evening to offer comfort to those who are facing suffering of any kind, and of course to give confidence at the prospect of facing suffering that may ever come our way in the future, because none of us knows what the future may bring. So if you haven't been with us for the past few weeks, just a brief overview of uh, Peter's book. Um, It's believed that uh, 1 Peter was probably written in the mid-60s AD, and the first recipients of Peter's letter were confused and discouraged by the persecution that they were encountering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's remember that at the time of Peter's writing, the social ethos of the first century was Greco-Roman, and so significantly different uh, to our own Judeo-Christian ethic that we enjoy today in Western cultures, and to which we owe so much of our Christian liberty. Peter is writing in the opening verse, he says, to those elect exiles of the dispersion. So Christians, new converts, had been dispersed at that time, um, shortly after um, the church had been established. And so he's writing to try and encourage uh, these newfound Christians in their faith and in their walk uh, with Christ. And so he exhorts those people to stand strong in the face of persecution and suffering that they may face and were facing. And there's no doubt that this book is written to Christians and that those Christians were already facing persecution or were living in constant fear of receiving persecution. Peter also reminds his his readers of the reason that they first turned away from their old pagan or Gentile religions and their practices associated with them in order to follow Christ. And in verse 3 of the opening chapter, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And so he's trying to remind those early believers of exactly the reward they have already in making that decision to follow Christ. For the original readers to whom Peter wrote, their identity as Christians was a source of great joy in having set aside their old practices and religions that, of course, we know were futile, empty and hopeless. And they've now taken on a new living hope, having been born again through Jesus. But the irony of it was that this newfound faith and hope is also the reason that they're now suffering grief in various kinds of trials. Because of their Christian faith, they were being marginalised by society. They were being alienated in their relationships and threatened with, if not experiencing, a loss of honour and socio-economic standing. Sadly, this suffering faced by Christians was nothing new. We can all, of course, turn back to the examples of the Old Testament where we'll be able to cite plenty of followers of God who suffered as a result of their obedience to him. And let's, of course, not forget Jesus himself, who was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, 
and throughout the New Testament and down through the generations since then, we know that Christians suffer as a result of their faith. But despite the substantial differences between the social ethos of the first century Christians and our Western culture today, the principles upon which Peter offers his original readers, consolation, encouragement and guidance in their specific situations are applicable to all Christians at all times. And the Apostle wants his readers, that's us, to recognise the sweeping scope of the new life found in Christ and the implications for how we view ourselves now that we have been born again. Peter wants his readers to be living counterculturally to those around them. And a very real consequence of this living counterculturally is that very real likelihood of facing persecution. Romans 12 reminds us that we are to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So far, Peter has instructed us how to live holy lives and to abstain from certain practices in chapter 2, to submit to authority, whether that be governments or masters and our employers. He's given instructions on how wives are to relate to their husbands and husbands their wives in chapter 3. In chapter 4, Peter gives direct instruction on how, the, how to be stewards of God's grace, and that is how we were to give up certain practices that were once acceptable before knowing Christ. And as we saw a few weeks ago when Angus spoke in chapter 4, this extends to how we respond in suffering, knowing that Christ himself suffered for the sake of us. And so there's three questions I want us to ask this evening as we come to this final instalment. Um, and as we look at this, uh, close off uh, this book of 1 Peter. So the first question I want to ask us ourselves this evening is, in what attitude and style of life should we expect to face suffering? Second, why should we suffer? And thirdly, what hope do we have in suffering? So as we've... Uh, with the passage before us, uh, that's 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. How should we face suffering then? Peter throughout his letter has been instructing his readers to be living peaceable, obedient lives, submitting to those in authority over us in its various forms and being a people who are clothed in humility. Peter wants these attributes to be the things that mark us out as Christians. Of course, we can all uh, remember One of Jesus' best examples of humility was when he washed the disciples' feet as they gathered for the Last Supper before he was to be taken out and crucified. This job, we're aware, was reserved for the lowliest servant in the house. But instead, we see our leader, God's son, taking off his robe, taking a bowl of water and kneeling at the feet of his disciples and begins to wash. Let's remember that Peter was the one who became the object of Christ's instruction to us during this act, when John records for our learning what Peter's response was to Jesus as he knelt at Peter's feet. Remember, of course, that Peter himself was the one who protested at his Lord for taking such a lowly position at his feet. He asked the question, Lord, are you washing my feet? How can it be that the King of kings and Lord of lords should be found doing a work of a servant? So as Peter reaches the close of this first letter, I think he's got this particular act of Jesus at the forefront of his mind and this lesson of humility and submission that Jesus demonstrated so powerfully to him. 
And so we come to verse 6 of chapter 5, where Peter is in effect concluding his letter. And he says these words, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He's saying in effect, look, in everything that I've just said in, these, um, in the earlier parts of my letter to you, I want you to be humble, just as Christ was humble. I want you to mimic Christ. Whatever is happening to you or going to happen to you in the future, I want the only accusation against you to be your humility. As Jesus faced questions and accusations throughout his life and during his ministry here on earth, Jesus was the perfect example to us to show humility towards his accusers and hearers, despite his majestic status as the Son of God and the creator of all things. How often do we, when faced with an accusation, do we instantly want to defend ourselves, particularly if we think we're right or if we're too arrogant and proud to accept that we might be the ones in the wrong? But what was Jesus' example as he faced his his accusers bringing false accusations repeatedly against him? Even as he faced the very real prospect of being crucified for claiming to be the very thing that he was, he could have brought down ten legions of angels from heaven to completely silence his accusers. But instead, we're reminded from the words of Isaiah that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so Jesus opened not his mouth. Christ's example to us is that even though we might know we are right, even though we know we are being treated unfairly and being humiliated, we are to endure that humiliation in humble submission. Our natural urge, of course, is to fight back and to defend ourselves. But where is the glory for God in that? If the only charge our accusers can bring against us is that we lead decent, humble lives, that we are obedient to our masters, how much more glory will God get than if we are quarrelsome and disobedient? I think this was Peter's whole point in chapter 4, verse 15. He wants the only accusation to be brought against us to be those things that plainly mark us out as Christians and that to be our only charge. If we turn back to that in chapter 4, just over the page, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so as we face the fiery trial that Peter wants us to be content in doing that, Because in so doing, we are sharing in Christ's sufferings. So this instruction then, at the opening verse of verse 6, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, is a command to accept, though not to seek, difficult circumstances as part of God's deliverance. That we don't have to rail against God with the question of why is this happening to me? Or what did I do to deserve this? We as Christians are to acknowledge that to be humiliated in various circumstances because of our faith and our identity in Christ is to accept that such treatment can be of God's will. And why? Why should we do that? And verse 6 gives us the answer. So that at the proper time, he may exalt us. God wants to exalt us. He's not going to leave us alone to face that judgment. That he has a purpose in that for his own glory and for our benefit. God doesn't leave us alone in our sufferings either. And so in verse 7, we are reminded that we can cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. 
Many anxieties will arise from professing Christ in a society that is hostile to the exclusive claims of the gospel. The loss of status, the loss of respect, the loss of family standing, friends, perhaps the loss of a livelihood or even of one's life were all very real possibilities for the people of Asia Minor and so easily could be faced by us at some point in the future. But Peter reminds his readers to cast their cares upon their loving, faithful creator and to continue to do good. So then, we are to face suffering uh, then with humility and submission. Our next question, why should we expect suffering if we follow Christ? We've already alluded to this first reason for our suffering in that we've looked at, in what we have looked at so far, in as much as when we are persecuted for no good earthly reason, as we looked at in chapter 4 briefly, we are bringing glory to God. This is why Peter wants us to be living submissive and humble lives, whatever our circumstances. But the other active cause of suffering is found in verse 8. We are told that there is an adversary, the devil, who is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The threat of destruction is real, and the devil is real. But we were reminded by Ben a number of weeks ago that not all, our, all acts of harm or suffering are directly attributable to Satan. We, of course, live in a sin-sick world, which naturally puts us all at enmity with God. So not all trials and struggles come directly from the devil. The existence of sin itself within and around about us is enough to test and challenge our walk of faith with God. But nonetheless, Satan the devil is real, and he is truly, actively prowling around, seeking the destruction of God's kingdom. The spiritual attack of the devil is sometimes personal, just like it was with his servant Job, where you recall that Satan himself had to go into God's presence to seek permission from God in order to attack Job and to test his faith. That, of course, was a very personal and real attack, one which is incomprehensible to us if you're familiar with the story of Job and his situation. Remember, he gets to that point, doesn't he, where even his own wife urges him to simply curse God and die, that his situation was so miserable. But Job was faithful, wasn't he, and stays the course of his suffering with confidence that he would one day be vindicated. But there's also many occasions when Satan is at work in a more general sense, in ordering some of the world's systems. Peter may have had in mind the satanic powers that were at work in his day, in the social-political system of the Roman Empire that they were under. And of course, many of them would have been suffering in the similar way that Jesus had suffered. And how much of today's persecution, such as the attacks in Sri Lanka over the Easter holidays, Uh, or the ones we read about at our last prayer meeting um, in various locations, uh, are attributable to Satan being at work through political and religious regimes in our day. The imagery used here by Peter of a roaring lion, a roaring lion is enough, more than enough, to scatter a flock of sheep in a panic. And of course, a roaring lion would also be able to devour some of those weakest um, sheep in the flock. And so too has many... A, religious, a similar regime pitted against Christian beliefs caused Christians to scatter. The war in Syria currently, the displacement of Christians and ethnic minorities in Myanmar, are obvious examples where Satan's influence on religious and political regimes has a direct effect 
on Christians. So Satan is real. He's active. And he's roaring and seeking someone to devour. With that in mind then, Peter urges us in verse 8 to be sober-minded and watchful and vigilant. We must remember that despite Satan's roars, he's also subtle and persuasive and cunning. We only have to look back to the Garden of Eden as the most obvious example of his persuasive, suggestive language. He says, doesn't he, did God really say? Did he really say you won't die? You won't die. You'll be able to see more clearly. And then we see the unfolding of the greatest curse on the earth that man has ever experienced. Yeah, my kids really enjoy the story of the gingerbread man and how he runs with confidence. Run, 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 as fast as you can. You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. And of course, you'll recall from the stories, he runs past all manner of threats who, in essence, want to eat him. Eventually, his escape is thwarted by a river until he turns and finds the sly old Mr. Fox, eagerly on hand to help him across the river. The gingerbread man happily accepts this offer of help and jumps on the fox's tail, then his back, then his nose, till, snap, the fox has gobbled him up. Satan's devices to devour us, to gobble us up, are exactly the same, aren't they? They're subtle at first. Just like the gambler, a little bet here, a slightly bigger bet there. Win some, lose some. Maybe I'll win a bit back, I'll win it all back next time. A slightly bigger bet, another big win, another bigger bet, another big loss. And on and on and on it goes until the losses of a couple of hundred quid have spiralled into thousands and has cost your job, cost your home, cost your family. Subtle, cunning, roaring, devouring. Same cunning deceit finds its way into the church, doesn't it, and the teachings of it, so that little by little, heresy and falsehood are able to creep in and become widely accepted across our churches. Moving on then, Peter urges us in verse 9 that we are to resist him, to stand firm in the faith. Remember Paul's instruction to us in Ephesians that we are to arm ourselves like a soldier ready for battle. He talks of the shoes of readiness that enable us to stand firm as we take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So we should expect suffering. Why? Because Satan is still at work and he's active but also because God is glorified in our sufferings. Finally then, what hope can we have in suffering as we move on to verses 9 through to 11? So after we've resisted the devil and stood firm in the face of suffering, as we try to live our peaceable and humble lives, what's the point of it all? Where will it lead us to and is there any hope? If you're not already a believer here this evening... This all probably sounds pretty miserable, doesn't it? But this isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of what Christians can expect. First of all, God's people will be vindicated or exalted. If we jump back up to the end of verse 6, where Peter reminds us there is a time when we will be exalted. Our willingness to submit to God's will now is purposeful. Throughout the letter... Peter has made frequent references to the coming glory 
when Christ will be revealed. And so there is a similar reference to when in the future all Christians who have been demeaned and humiliated by society because of their faith will at last be vindicated. Another childhood story. I love the story of the emperor's new clothes. You know how the emperor calls his best tailors to um, bring him a new suit or to tailor him a new suit. And they tell him that the new suit they're making for him is, of course, invisible to those who are unsuited to serve him or otherwise just so hopelessly stupid to see it. And so everyone jumps on the bandwagon, don't they? Along with the king, not wanting to state the obvious stupidity that is plain for everyone to see for fear of being thought stupid themselves by everyone else. In the end, you'll recall from the story, it takes a mere child in the crowd to exclaim the obvious that the emperor is in fact naked. I love this story because I liken it to so many situations in our society today, such as the theory of evolution. Aren't we made to feel completely stupid, if not humiliated, if we dare to challenge the apparent proofs of evolution that are put before us? There have been so many eminent and revered scientific professors making public claim to the supposed proofs of evolution that no one dares challenge them for fear of being labelled stupid. And so, professor after professor, scientist after scientist, tutors, lecturers, they all jump on the same bandwagon of proclaiming the evolutionary account as fact. And yet the whole time, the folly and stupidity of it is plain for the youngest child to see. There will come a time, you see, when all those who stand firm on the foundational belief that all things were created by a great creator God will finally be vindicated, when that apparent folly will be shown to be absolute truth and the true folly will be revealed. Verse 9 reminds us to take confidence in the knowledge that we don't face our sufferings alone. It says there, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, there's something strange about humanity that makes uh, something far easier to face if you know you're not alone. Have you ever been in a situation that scares you or where you feel very lonely? But then someone comes alongside. They offer to face the situation with you or explains that they've been in the same situation or they've endured the same illness or hardship and they can completely sympathise with your predicament. That sense of relief and confidence that, that having that companionship can bring is sometimes unexplainable. Of course, we are familiar with the phrase, a problem shared is a problem halved. And so I think it's the same here. This is what Peter is referring to, that as our brothers and sisters face persecution, that we can come alongside them, that we can know that if we ourselves face persecution for the sake of Christ, that we are not alone in our struggles. Even if at that particular moment of trial we are indeed alone. There's a unity in our suffering and an identity that we take on as members of the family of Christ. This brotherhood that Peter refers to. In our sufferings we suffer as Christ himself suffered and we thereby take on the identity of Christ. But there is a reward for those who endure and there is hope. The Christian message is entirely centred on God's people having hope. And we come to that in verse 10, where he says, Peter says to us, and after you have suffered a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace, 
who has called you to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, will, he will, it's a, per, it's a perfect promise, he will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. This is a promise. God will do these things. God is the God of all grace. He isn't going to leave us alone in our sufferings. Even if they endure for a lifetime, as some Christians do. But even if it's not for a lifetime, even if it's only for a short period, he will rescue, he will deliver us, he will vindicate us. And the promise is also that he will make all things new. Not just for a while, not just for a little while, not just for a lifetime, but for all eternity. We will be called to his eternal glory. So if even for a lifetime we endure suffering and persecution, in comparison to eternity, it will be just a little while. The already, but the not yet, of the Christian hope that we often refer to. So how can we have this confidence, this hope? How was it that Corrie ten Boom and her sister could endure the horrors of a Nazi concentration camp? How is it that Christians in North Korea endure imprisonment and worse without renouncing their faith? It's all by Christ. Christ is our example. Christ is our comfort. And Christ is our reward. Peter, in verse 11, finishes off his exhortations where he says, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.